a snowstorm, a brand new freezer, a wood chipper used to grind tree branches into mulch, and a missing flight attendant. They all have one thing in common, an airline pilot with death in his eyes. My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. We're crossing the line. It's November 18th, 1986, in a ferocious early winter storm, which we sometimes call a nor'easter here because of the direction it rolls in, is predicted to rip across the state of Connecticut. First slated to be all rain, temperatures suddenly drop, near to freezing, all over New England. Blinding and drifting snow is now expected. Everyone is on edge, and people start acting weird when a major storm approaches, buying gallons of water and toilet paper in bulk, clogging up grocery store lines, filling their vehicles with gas, and buying lots and lots of booze. Gotta have something to get you through. (laughs) You definitely do. Except for maybe not you, but you, you've you been sober for what? Not 20? me. I'm like a teetotaler. Is that what it, it's called? A teetotaler? Yeah, I like uh, it. 27 years of teetotaling. It's pretty good. And that is the voice of my co-piloting producer here on CTL. Hi. Hi, Catherine. On the day of the storm, Hella Crafts, a much-adored mother of three, originally born in Denmark, is set to be dropped off by a co-worker at her southwestern Connecticut home. Hella is a flight attendant for Pan Am Airlines, and she's married to a handsome, quiet, and reclusive pilot for Eastern Airlines, Richard Crafts. 39-year-old Hella is blonde, skinny, tall, charming disposition, and she has an uncanny way of making everyone around her feel comfortable, important, and loved. She's a nice person. Hella is beyond tired that evening when her Pan Am flight returns to JFK Airport. New York. She'd worked a long shift, a nine-hour nonstop flight from Frankfurt, Germany, that came into JFK an hour later than expected because of powerful headwinds. It's near 5 p.m. when Hella and a co-worker jump into a car and start the two-hour journey northwest toward Newtown, Connecticut, where Hella lives. Hella and Richard Crafts share a modest home on the outskirts of town in a cul-de-sac set back from the road, somewhat private, with a spacious yard. When Hella and her co-worker pull into the driveway that night, Hella sighs. She's deflated. She looks toward the house and she says, Ugh, Richard's home. It's clear that Hella is feeling trapped. She's still living at home because of the kids, yet emotionally, she is totally checked out of her marriage. So with all of that, setting it up, let me bring in a friend. Early in her journalism career, Lisa Peterson worked as a law enforcement and criminal justice staff reporter at several Connecticut newspapers, including the Newtown Bee and The Hour. Her work has appeared in USA Today, Connecticut Magazine, The News Times, and many more. She is a recognized expert in investigative journalism, especially where this case is concerned. And look, for my money, Lisa knows more about the Crafts case than anyone else. 
I met Lisa uh, in Cape Cod one summer when she took a writing class I was teaching at the Cape Cod Writers Conference. We hit it off when she mentioned the Woodchipper case. Back in 1986, I was a staff reporter at the Newtown Bee, which was the weekly newspaper here in Newtown, Connecticut. I covered the police beat, and it was unusually active in Newtown uh, during the two months of November 1986. We had had three homicides in two months, which is very unusual for our town. This feels really significant. Three murders in two months in Newtown, Connecticut, which at the time was unprecedented. It's a pleasant little town, and this is an anomaly that would have an impact on the Crafts case. On that November night in 1986, Richard Crafts is inside the couple's home with their three kids waiting for Hella to come home. The co-worker drove her home uh, to her house on Newfield Lane in Newtown. And Helly saw that Richard was home and just said to Judy, oh, Richard's home, and then got out of the car and went inside. Apparently, she had had a fight with Richard a few days prior to this flight, and they were in the middle of a divorce at the time. Not long after Hella begrudgingly makes the trek up her driveway, the first few flakes from that nor'easter begin to fall from the sky. And the snow's significant in this case. That's why, you know, we kind of were mentioning it. You know the trope. You don't have your character stop at the store to get cigarettes unless the matches are going to burn a house down later. Okay, so so we're not just throwing in the snow for color here. By early morning, though, they get less snow than expected. A heavy, wet five inches. Not the blizzard they thought, but enough to weigh down electrical lines and snap tree branches, knocking power out in many Connecticut towns, including Newtown. The town had this eerie blue covering of ice all over it. When you drove up to uh, Castle Hill and looked out over the center of town, everything was just covered in this blue glaze of ice. Lisa Peterson has lived in Newtown most of her life. She knows the comings and goings of this wealthy town. The Crafts divorce is going to be the talk of the town for sure. Helly Crafts had uh, suspected that her husband was cheating on her. So she had hired a divorce attorney who recommended she get more proof, and she had hired a private investigator to go follow Richard. The private investigator went to New Jersey and took some photographs of Richard with his girlfriend at her house down there. Hella is done. Richard has been dodging the sheriff's attempts to serve him divorce papers, and Hella is getting scared. She specifically told her divorce attorney uh, that she was afraid of Richard and that, uh, If anything happens to me, don't assume it's an accident. So it's kind of becoming clear that she doesn't even want to be in the same house as this guy. I I don't even think she wants to be in the same state with this guy. Yeah. Um, Things start to get weird the next day. And it's true. Hella doesn't want to be inside that house. She and Richard are divorcing. The tension is wound tight as a high wire. She's at a point where she can't stand the sight of the guy anymore. But Hella is worried about the kids. So she sucks it up. Turns out that walk up the driveway earlier that her co-worker had witnessed was the last time anyone outside the Crafts household would see Hella. And in the morning, uh, Richard Crafts woke up and he told the live-in babysitter and uh, took his three children and Don, the babysitter, to his sister's house in Westport, Connecticut that morning. 
Westport is about a 40-minute drive from Newtown. Hella's sister-in-law wonders why she isn't with Richard. The sister-in-law knew Hella had returned from her flight the night before. Richard explains that Hella has gone over to her sister's house, where he is heading next to meet up with her. It's kind of strange he's dropping the children off and heading to her sister's, but this is the story the guy tells. So he left the home and took the kids down there because he said the house was cold, there was no electricity, and then he dropped them off there but came back to Newtown for the rest of that day. By the end of that day, November 19, no one has heard from Hella. No one has spoken to her. Her co-workers, whom she speaks to nearly daily, think, well, perhaps she took an extra flight and is in the air, unable to talk to anyone. Makes sense. She's a flight attendant. Hella had mentioned something about working extra hours to save for a vacation for her and the kids. But here's the thing. Flight attendants had to stand down for 48 hours before taking another trip after working the number of hours Hella had that week. There is no way that she could be in the air. Essentially, Hella is missing. People close to her are beginning to ask questions. Days go by. Where is she? Hella usually responds right away to phone calls. It's not like her to go off the grid or change plans at the last minute. She lets people know where she is, always. Richard started to tell different people different stories. So the first instance was with the babysitter that Helly was, uh, had left uh, and gone to visit her mother in Denmark, which wasn't true. And then he told a friend of Helly's that, oh, she had gone to visit another friend of hers down in the Canary Islands. So, and then there was another person who happened to be a police officer in Southbury, where he worked as an auxiliary police officer. And he said, oh, you know, Hella's visiting somewhere else. So, yeah, he started telling different scenarios and stories to different people, and none of them were matching. It's November 20, two days now since Hella has disappeared. Richard is seen driving around Newtown with, of all things, a rented industrial-sized wood chipper towed by a U-Haul truck that he also rented. Now, after a storm like this, there are often tree limbs down all over the place. I can certainly testify to that. Ice weighs down the tree branches, breaking them, and things are a mess. That's why renting a wood chipper might not appear to be that much out of the ordinary here. But when your wife is divorcing you, and she is unofficially missing... And you were driving around town with heavy machinery that pulps trees into wood chips, people might start to question your rental choices. I don't like where this is going, Phelps. Yeah, I think we're getting an idea where this is going, but let's take a break here. I know how much everybody loves the commercial breaks, and <laughs> we'll take a deep breath and come back and see where this case goes next. So I know we're talking about Newtown, Connecticut here, and that is the same town that Sandy Hook Elementary is in, correct? Yeah. The town has two names, Sandy Hook, Newtown. And you said everybody kind of calls it Sandy Hook, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, and, you know, that's the sign on the highway exit yeah. here for Sandy Hook. And it's very familiar to listeners, I'm sure, that mm -hmm. horrific tragedy. This area... 
that town, Newtown, will forever be attached to the worst school shooting in our history when on December mm-hmm. 14th, 2012, 20-year-old Adam Lanza killed his mother, Nancy, in the home they shared and then made his way to Sandy Hook Elementary School with several automatic weapons and proceeded to murder 20 children and six adults before taking his own life. It honestly gives me chills to think about that it's almost been a decade since then because it feels so much more recent than that. I have a friend who lives out there and her son had been at the school and she arrived at the school. Her mom friend came up to her and said, I saw your son, the two moms, their kids were best friends. And her friend came up and said, I saw your son. He's safe. He's okay. But help me look for my child. And her child was one of the ones that was killed. Oh. Yeah. And then you think about the families that lost their children, which is horrifying. But then you also think about, like, you're in elementary school and you lose your best friend. You lose several people in your class. Like, it's just, it's unfathomable. I mean, it it was one of the most horrific crimes imaginable. And yet, you know, when I think about it in terms of true crime, we never cover these stories in true crime. It's No, I think that's that's a really good point. And it's why do you think that is? It's kind of a different type of murder, a different type of crime. I, I think because in this case it's dealing with so many children's lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's get back to Heli Crafts. After days of being unable to get a hold of Hella Crafts, her divorce attorney becomes greatly concerned. They had been in constant contact because Hella was trying to serve Richard divorce papers and officially end the marriage. Worried about her client, Hella's attorney hires the same private investigator she used to photograph Richard with his girlfriend. And he starts searching for Hella. But rather than just keep this case to himself, the PI contacts the local police. He tells them the attorney's concerns. In contradiction to a certain film's plot, which revolves around the limitless curiosity of a heavily pregnant sheriff, (laughs) the police simply aren't interested. Hella is an adult. She has a right to be missing if she wants to be. Maybe even a reason to be if her marriage has soured. But by December 1st, the private investigator brings the craft's babysitter to the police to give a statement about the fact that Hella came home on that day of her flight from Frankfurt, Germany, but then seemingly vanished. The babysitter, who does not live in the house, says she hasn't heard from Hella since the day she came home, and that seems very strange to her. Then the babysitter says something else that alarms the private investigator, something that finally gets the local police's attention. Here's Lisa Peterson again. On the night of the storm, she came back at 2 a.m. from her job in Danbury. She worked in McDonald's. She had driven Helicraft's car to work and back home that night. The next morning, when Richard left with the kids and uh, Don, the babysitter, Heli's car was missing. So she witnessed all of that. She also witnessed all of um, Richard's different stories. But most importantly, she saw what was going on inside the house. She had observed a large black stain on the master bedroom carpet, a round stain that was sort of near the bed. And she'd also seen Richard pull up all the carpeting in the entire house uh, in the following days. 
So she was witness to a lot of strange behavior on Richard's part. So Richard has been hiring the babysitter as he comes and goes. One of the most important observations the babysitter makes is that Hella would never leave her kids without word of where she was heading, and she would never, ever leave without saying when she would return. As the official investigation begins, Hella's car becomes a focal point. With her car gone, maybe she did take off somewhere. Divorce does strange things to people. And you do the unexpected. You really do. You know, here, police search for Hella's car, and soon they locate Hella's car, making matters even more complicated and downright strange. So police eventually found Helicraft's car. It was a Toyota Tercel down in the parking lot of JFK um, Airport in New York City. Uh, And it was in the employee parking lot. And it had been there for several days. um, And no one really knew how it got there. Had Hella taken a flight and worked those extra hours she'd wanted to pick up? Had she gone to Denmark to see her family? Maybe. I mean, it makes sense. After all, you know, if you're a police officer looking into this case, you hear hoofbeats, you should think horses, not zebras. I agree with that. You should follow the evidence. Always. We know that. I don't want to start the math stuff now. We're not going to get into the math (laughs) stuff in this episode. Two plus two equals four. But you're right. You follow the evidence. And if... It looks like horses. It generally is horses, not zebras. Right, right. You know, they find Hella's car at the airport. There's reason to believe she took a flight somewhere. Okay, so just to play devil's advocate, if she didn't drive her car to the airport, how did it get there? So there's a couple ways her car could get to the airport. Okay. She drove it, someone else drove it, or it was towed. Mm. Those are the only three ways. And police look into this and it's easily confirmed her name is on no manifesto for any flight with any airline Mm -hmm. okay so we know she didn't fly out of jfk but yet there's her car right but now let's go to the babysitter statement who claims just after that storm richard left the house and was gone for an entire day and this was the last time she recalls seeing hella's car in the driveway and she says richard had rented a U-Haul truck. Good for towing. So again, we're following horses. The horse is leading us to means and opportunity now. As those days turn into weeks, the private investigator is unhappy with the pace of the missing person investigation the Sandy Hook police are conducting. Okay, so the PI is Francis McDormand. You got it. (laughs) You got it. The police have been questioning family and friends, but not much else is being done. Why is it Richard dragged in and at least questioned? Based on the babysitter's statement, the private investigator decides he is going to look for that carpet Richard ripped out of the house. He scours local dumps and eventually finds a carpet like the one from the house, but there is no blood on it. As it turns out, it's not the same carpet. Mm. But the PI keeps pushing, and I give him credit for that. The idea that there could be a carpet somewhere with Hella's blood on it and that Hella could even be wrapped up in it is enough to get the attention of the Western District Major Crime Squad of the Connecticut State Police. So now the big boys are coming in. They begin searching for Hella, and a story starts to develop in the local newspapers. But something that's good to keep in mind here is this. 
Police at this point do not know Richard rented a wood chipper. Those who saw him driving around with it just assumed he was another dude in town with a wood chipper after a storm preparing to clean up his yard. Well, uh, it happened on Christmas Eve. One of the Newtown detectives was going through uh, Richard's credit card statements, and he discovered that he had rented a commercial wood chipper uh, basically on the day that she had disappeared. And he thought, oh, my God, did he use this to get rid of the body? So the police had definitely thought about that. At the same time, uh, the state police had found a plow driver during the night of the storm and the few days afterwards who had seen a man uh, with a wood chipper pulled by a U-Haul truck uh, in the storm along River Road in Southbury, along Lake Zora there. So they put two and two together, and when they went to the site on River Road where the wood chipper was seen by the plow driver and started looking around, they found some mail addressed to Helicrafts, and then they decided that they needed to do a deeper dive and set up a forensic tent to look for evidence. Based on everything they know at the time, it seems circumstantially plausible that Richard Crafts might have killed his wife. And if he did, he likely either wrapped her in that carpet and dumped her body somewhere, or, as ghastly as it sounds, he ran her through that wood chipper in the wooded area near that river, which is not too far from the Crafts' house. Oh my God. Did they make the leap to wood chipper that fast, do you think? Well, yeah, you have to, because remember, there's no limbs or anything down in the guy's yard. So why does he need a wood chipper? Uh, During the middle of a storm, why go out and get a wood chipper? But there's more evidence coming, and police have access to more evidence. And I'll just say here that they also realized that he bought a freezer, one of those chest freezers that you could fit Mm -hmm. a body in, basically. Mm -hmm. All they know is that all of this looks very bad for helicrafts. With mail addressed to Hella on the ground by the river, it's enough to get forensics out there to do a search. Are there any signs of blood, bone, body parts? <laughs> if Richard mulched Hella's body in a wood chipper by the river, there is no way, no possible way, he would have been able to clean up everything, get rid of every bit of her body. Oh, and it would be bits. Yeah, it'd be bone fragments. It'd yeah. Be lots of bone fragments. The idea of him going out there, my guess is, would be that Richard thought nobody would see him. Or if they did, they'd think he was just mulching down tree limbs. Totally. Like, if you see this guy from the road and you see something coming out of the wood chipper, you assume it's wood chips. It's part of the course. It's normal. Crafts wasn't planning on a snowplow driver recognizing him, let alone recalling it. Small town. Yep. The driver was a town employee. He would know any other town employee out there mulching down tree limbs. And Richard Crafts is not a town employee. So the thing is, who would be mulching tree limbs during a snowstorm anyway? That's a really good point, because when I think of who is out there mulching tree limbs, I think Orange Vest City employee, but I didn't even realize I was thinking that until you said that. And so you have a citizen of the town mm-hmm. out on town property mulching tree limbs. It makes zero sense. Yeah. So they set up a tent. It was uh, the end of December. It was cold. The ground was frozen and muddy. They set up a tent with uh, space heaters in there and tables. And they uh, literally started to uh, pick up small pans of dirt and sort of sifting for gold, if you will, uh, to look for 
uh, human remains that might be small as if they had gone through a wood chipper. And it was slow going. It took several days to a week or two weeks. They were out there. They had several detectives. They had experts in, um, you know, dental work and others out there looking. And eventually they recovered um, a fragment of a of a toe. They they found a fingertip without a nail. They found a fingernail. They found 2,300 strands of blonde hair. They found a part of a dental crown and a bit of a tooth root attached to it. Uh, they also found a toenail. So it was all little tiny pieces. Literally, it was less than an ounce of human remains, but uh, it was certainly significant because these remains were found at the spot where the plow driver saw a man with a wood chipper during the storm. Early forensic blood type testing and dental records eventually proved that the remains are likely that of helicrafts. You knew it was coming. It appears Richard Crafts had put his wife's body through a commercial wood chipper. And yet a few questions remain. Most importantly, at this stage of the investigation, they have to answer one major query. How can a prosecutor charge a man for the murder of his wife? And especially, how do they get a judge to sign off on an arrest warrant if they do not have a body? And the second question going through everyone's mind is seemingly much more simple, yet it's painful to think about. Was Hella Crafts dead or alive when her husband fed her body through the wood chipper? Jesus. Mary and Joseph. I literally got chills from that. Exactly. And just for the record, you can't see it, listeners, but Catherine did not cross herself when she said that. So she, <laughs> she literally committed blasphemy. Is that is that the taking the Lord's name in vain? Yes. Yeah. If you don't cross yourself? Yeah. You just, if, if you're, let's say you're chopping wood to keep in vain of the wood chipper, you're chopping wood and you smash your leg and you go, Jesus Christ. And then you cross yourself. It negates it as a Catholic. All right. I'm yep. crossing myself. Yep. Yep. I grew up Mennonite. I can't be blamed. Oh, it's time for another break. How about that? I think so. And we'll come back and wrap up the infamous wood chipper case. DNA analysis as a forensic tool was not even a thing in 1986. It was only a few years since English genetics professor Alec Jeffries discovered that certain patterns within DNA strands, you know, that double helix, are able to distinguish one person from another. And the science then was mainly used for paternity cases, basically, not murder. Less than an ounce of bone and other remains are found by the river. You have to admit it's a pretty devious way to get rid of a body. It's really like he made her body almost disappear. And the river just washes away the evidence. It's, you know, it's it's really methodical, um, diabolical thinking. Yeah. You wonder where a guy like that gets the idea. And we'll soon discover where he gets the idea if you continue to listen. Remember, what's significant for police is the fact that Richard Crafts has been spotted at the scene with a wood chipper and a piece of mail addressed to Hella Crafts was discovered in that same area. And now we have body parts. You know what they say on crossing the line. 
Okay, I know this one. Two plus two equals four. Exactly. <laughs> we are so good at math. The best. And we don't need any calculators here on crossing the line. <laughs> There's more, though. Warrants are signed to search his house and vehicles. Over the next six weeks, very small bits of tissue and hair embedded in wood chips are found in Richard Crafts's car. More fragments of tissue and bone are located near the river. Then a final horrifying discovery. A chainsaw belonging to Richard Crafts is found under a bridge. Ooh, so this is two plus two plus two equals six. I, that's excellent work, Captain Law. Crafts is brought in. It's about fucking time. Holy shit. How much more evidence do you need? Right. Over a period of several weeks, he takes three separate polygraph tests, and lo and behold, he passes them all. A rumor begins to surface of perhaps Hella staging her own death to frame Richard. This is no doubt a conception of Richard's defense. By January 14, 1987, however, almost two months after Hella went missing, Richard Crafts is arrested and charged in his wife's murder, and yet the prosecution does not and will never have a body. Crafts has been called one of the, quote, coolest and most aloof people ever interviewed by local law enforcement. In fact, I know someone very well who did jury consultation for Richard Crafts, and he tells me that Crafts was stone cold very little emotion, and almost no personality. That you could almost feel his hardness when you were around him. You know, you'd, you'd be describing a psychopath or a sociopath there. You know, you're heading towards that. It's over a year before the trial begins. Here's the problem. DNA evidence, even if you had it and could prove it as a part of a murder case, is not yet admissible in court. Right. It wasn't admissible until like the 90s, kind of around the time of the O.J. Simpson trial, right? It was brand new then. Yes. And people were still... They had to be taught. Yeah, they had to be like taught about what DNA was and how it could be used. And they still kind of didn't really believe it. Remember that tedious O.J. Simpson trial testimony of what DNA uh -huh. forensics actually is? I mean, and, and you uh -huh. still didn't understand, you know? Yeah. You were asking juries to to really by a lot. Lisa Peterson is there for the entire trial. The prosecution obviously has to come up with something to explain the incomplete body part and tissue evidence it has. So they, they had DNA evidence, but what they really sort of discovered and had almost invented, if you will, a way to blood type bone, which had never been done before. So they were able to tell that the blood type in the bone was type O blood which is a very common blood type, but it was also Helicraft's blood type. So as far as forensics that they could um, bring to trial, uh, and these human remains were never identified as Helicraft's. The most they could do at the time was say, uh, these human remains have type O blood. That coupled with all the circumstantial evidence the prosecution believes might just be enough to persuade a jury that Richard Crafts murdered his wife froze her body in a new freezer he had purchased shortly before she disappeared, cut her up with a chainsaw he bought around that time, and fed her body parts through a rented wood chipper. 
I mean, you wouldn't want to buy a whole wood chipper just for one murder, Phelps. Yeah, but you'd want to buy a freezer and a chainsaw, though. That's smart. You know, it, it it's always interesting to me how killers sometimes will go to tedious, tedious extremes to hide yeah. certain things. But then this these other things they leave out in the open. Right, like they'll leave the hammer at the crime scene. Right. It's so bizarre. Like here, he goes through all this, all this to rent a wood chain. He goes through all this stuff and yet he buys a freezer the week before and he buys a chainsaw the week before. On that chainsaw, they find blood and hair, again matching Hella's blood type. The serial number on the saw has been filed off. But the Connecticut State Police Lab is able to use a special method to get the serial number to show up again. They pour a chemical on the metal and use a special light, and wouldn't you know, the serial number matched the one Richard purchased in the days leading up to Hella's disappearance. Even though you just explained how it works, in my mind, all I can see is them like putting a piece of butcher paper over it and like using with a, a pencil. <laughs> with a pencil. Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's yep. all I can see in my mind. After what goes on to be a strange, long trial with gruesome details, including a video of the prosecution putting a dead, cut-up, frozen pig through a wood chipper. Oh, Jesus, now I did cross myself, and I'm not even Catholic. (sighs) You need to. (laughs) Well, after that, something even more bizarre happens. If you can even... I can't. I can't. I can't. The most damning piece of evidence the prosecution presented was a gold-capped crown found along the riverbed that forensic experts testify belongs to Helicrafts. This Woodchipper case had no body, and it was a risk for the prosecution to bring this case into arrest Richard Crafts because they literally had just circumstantial evidence, and they had no crime scene. You know, they thought it would be in the bedroom. They had no murder weapon. They surmised it might have been a flashlight that he hit her on the head with, thus creating that large black spot on the carpet. Um, There wasn't a huge motive other than the divorce. And there was no history of physical violence in this marriage either, except for one incident like nine years ago. So everything was circumstantial. All the remains, all the actions that Richard was doing following her disappearance. So it was a big gamble for them, certainly. Before the trial even gets underway, controversy arises. You see, Sandy Hook is close to Danbury, Connecticut, where the trial is scheduled to be held. We were in the Danbury Superior Court, and we went through jury selection. And the judge said after that that uh, he had to do a change of venue because the jury was so tainted. They had read so much in the newspapers about this case. The defense attorney had even complained that... um, uh, you know, so much information was being leaked to the media that the media had more information than they did on evidence. So the whole trial was moved to New London in a change of venue. And that trial started, it took four months to present hundreds of witnesses and exhibits painstakingly to introduce all this forensic evidence um, to the jury because it was very technical and very complicated. The prosecution's gamble does not pay off. After jury deliberation started, there was a lone juror who refused to deliberate anymore. He felt Richard was innocent. He was being bullied by the other jurors. And finally, after 17 days of deliberations, which is the longest in state history, the judge had to declare a mistrial. Richard's trial ends in a hung jury. 
The juror who believed in Richard's innocence held out and just would not come around. In fact, he walked out of deliberations and refused to return. The prosecution is adamant. Richard Crafts will be prosecuted again. And he is. This time, Richard is convicted of first-degree murder. It's November 21, 1989, almost on the anniversary of Hella going missing. Richard is sentenced to 50 years. Both trials receive massive amounts of publicity all over the world. The shock value alone of a guy using a wood chipper to dispose of his wife's body was enough to bring in tabloid magazine-like shows such as A Current Affair, if anybody remembers that show. Journalists from Denmark were there covering the case because Hella's family was brought in to testify through an interpreter. And so I asked Lisa, what was it besides the wood chipper angle that got people to pay so much attention to the case? So this case is a classic case of missing white woman syndrome. Now, it hadn't been coined that yet back in 1986, but um it was. And the media has always sort of focused on the sort of victim persona, a young mother of three children. She's in distress. She's getting a divorce. Uh, all of a sudden she goes missing. What will happen to her children? What has her husband done to her? Has she been murdered? Um, this is the type of coverage that people just devour. And as you may have already guessed, this case was so big It went on to inspire filmmakers Joel and Ethan Cohen to write their 1996 Academy Award-winning film, Fargo. Oh, it's a good representation of Midwestern nice area. (laughs) That is awesome. I love that. (laughs) But how in the hell does one come up with this idea to use a wood chipper? That must be a question that everyone's asking, and we touched upon this earlier. There are so many other ways to go about this murder. Richard Crafts must have read something or gotten the idea somehow from something he saw. Or hell, maybe he did just think of it one day. I asked Lisa about this, and she tells a shocking story. What was interesting about the use of a wood chipper is that it was in the news recently, about six months prior to this murder, where a man in Danbury, Connecticut, um, had a dog, a German shepherd dog that was barking. And this is a horrible story. And I'm sorry to have to put this in out there, but he took his dog and he um, put the dog through the wood chipper. So it was in the news. It was kind of a little bit of press, a little depressing, especially if you're an animal lover, which I am. Um, But it was out there. So then all of a sudden, oh, now someone else has used a wood chipper to dispose of a body. Richard Crafts, 50 at the time he went to prison, serves only part of his sentence. Let's see. He dies in prison. Negative. Remarkably, he is released in 2020 after spending 32 years behind bars. What? He was sent to a halfway house in Bridgeport, Connecticut for homeless veterans. From there to this day, the trail goes cold on crafts. Uh, I hate it. I hate it. I hate all of it. I mean, I love it, but I also hate it. Why do you hate it? I hate that he got out. He should have died. I mean, they could have easily let him die in prison. I saw pictures of him when he got out of prison, and he just looked like a frail, old, old man. And it's like, Mm -hmm. 
look, he put his wife through a wood chipper. For fuck's sake, he put his wife through a wood chipper. And for all we know, Hella seems like a person who was trying to go out on her own. She seemed like a nice mom trying to save up for a trip to whatever Disneyland or something for her kids. Hella was the ideal human being. And we see this, Catherine, over and over again in these cases. Yeah. Many, 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 many cases we cover. It's always the person who is just the greatest human being imaginable who was murdered. Mm -hmm. And Hella was Mm -hmm. that person. Hella just did everything for her kids. It was all about her kids, all about her family. Remember, she's from Denmark, so she has those European-type values of family and home, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. And this guy was just a piece of shit. He, this guy was cheating on her with flight attendants, you know? So I don't know. I don't get it. I don't get it. Well, poor Hella Crafts had a chance encounter, built a family. And then got put through a wood chipper. Anyway, he's 82 when he walks out, 20 years early, I should say. 20 years early, this guy gets out. What's even the point? What is even the point of letting him out? For what's called statutory good time, which is good behavior and holding down a job while in prison. So for doing what you should in prison, you get 20 years shaved off your sentence. That's insane. And I hate it. And I'm not okay with it. That's New England. I mean, that's liberal, ultra liberal Connecticut, New York. I mean, that's how it is here. And it appalls me with these sentences. Don't get me going. We're at the end of this. I can't get going now. We got to wrap it up, Phelps. (laughs) All right. So that's it for this week. Be back here in seven days with another great true crime story for y'all. As always, be safe. Be aware. Sources for today's episode come from Phelps' interview with Lisa Peterson, Everything But a Body in Murder Trial by Nick Ravo, New York Times, May 15, 1988, State v. Crafts, Trial Documents, The Woodchipper Murder, a book by Arthur Herzog. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bacci and EP Christina Everett. Audio engineering, original music, and sound design by Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.